Hear now the word of the Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray before we start. Almighty, gracious Father, since our whole salvation depends upon our true understanding of your holy word, grant to all of us that our hearts, being free from worldly things, may hear and understand your holy word with all diligence and faith, that we may rightly understand your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all our hearts. To your praise and honor through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, if you looked at the subheading of today's passage, uh, it would have read divisions in the church, divisions in the church. And it's a subhead that has been aptly named and rightfully so. If you have grown up in the church as I have, and I suspect that many of you have grown up in the church I would say that most, if not all of you, but at the very least, many of you have, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I can't help but to sing with all I have on, on Sundays. <laughs> My voice is dying. Anyway, um, if you have grown up in the church as I have, I would say that many of you, at least many of you, have witnessed and experienced divisions in the church. This is an incredible tragedy, but it is a reality. And apparently, it was even a problem for the Corinthians. The issues of unity and division are a primary issue for Paul. And it's made apparent because it's the first thing that he addresses. You know, we started this new sermon series, and I was excited for it. And one thing that I hope that you and I have been learning is that when we sit in the Word, verse by verse, we go through it, there is a richness that we get that we don't get from just, you know, speaking stories or just going through, you know, just broad topics. But verse by verse, we dig in and we mine and we excavate and we see the richness of God's word. And I'm very excited to go through uh, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians with us all. And two weeks ago, we started, and this is the third week of our sermon series. The letter started with the address from the called apostle to the called saints to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus in worship as the church. And of course, we know and we've been taught that church from ecclesia means the ones that are called out of the world into holiness. And then we went into Thanksgiving, 
where Paul thanks God for what he has done in the Corinthians. He doesn't thank the Corinthians because there's really nothing to thank them for. In fact, it seems as though when you read this letter, they are just riddled with error after error, and as we go over here, divisions. But Paul thanks God for his salvation and the gift of himself to the church in Corinth. We now come to a very pivotal part of the letter. Hinged between the greeting, thanksgiving, and the rest of the letter is this word which we start today with, and it's the word appeal. I appeal to you, my brothers. I appeal. Appeal is from the word paracalo. And paracalo should sound familiar, right? It should sound familiar because we know of the word paraclete. Paraclete, which is another word for the Holy Spirit. Paraclete means helper or advocate. It comes from the prefix para, which means with or alongside, and kletos, which means to call. Now, if you have been paying attention to some of the word studies that we've been doing, it's not just so that, you know, oh, we can brag about us knowing Greek, but it really is all connected. Parakalo is the word appeal. Remember? Paraclete is the word Holy Spirit. It sounds similar because alongside, which is para, and kletos, which means to call, but also klete is also from the same root which means to call. Interestingly, interestingly enough, ecclesia, which also means church, is from kletos, which is to call. Ek is out. Klesia means um, to call, so it's called out. So this word all or out is used. The word appeal, then, parakalo, means like the origin paraclete, to call alongside, or to entreat, or as we've read here, to appeal. The hinge between the greeting with thanksgiving and the rest of the letter, which is exhortation, an exhortation to what? An appeal to what? Is this word, <clears throat> uh, parakalo. Um, what is an appeal to? It's an appeal to holy living. It's an appeal to holy living. And to put it another way, it's an appeal to change your evil behavior. It's an appeal to change your evil behavior. People are self-centered. We are dominated by our own selfish desires. And yes, even the church we may be justified, but we are justified sinners. That means we struggle with desires generated by the self or the ego. And James puts it succinctly and correctly in chapter 4 of his letter when he wrote, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions, another word for that is pleasures, that your passions, pleasures are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. 
You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We have selfish desires. Ever since we were young, we coveted, we stole, argued, fought. We did not promote unity, but division. Uh, This is especially true for me. Ever since I can remember, I have been selfish. I did fight. I did grow up extremely competitive, and this is something that I try to kind of tone down when we're here. So even when we're playing basketball, I'll just be like, yay, but that's about it. But even when I was in kindergarten, so the earliest memories I have really are of my selfish desires. I remember as a kid in pre-K, not even kindergarten, in pre-K, there was this other kid who had this toy car, and this toy car was pretty sick because it had doors, it hinges that open. It was this tiny little like box car, and it had doors with hinges that opened, and I really liked it. This is pre-K. And so I took that car, and afterwards everybody was supposed to go home, and the kid said, can I have my toy back? And I said, no, this is my toy. He's like, wait, I thought it was my toy. He's like, you're mistaken. This is my toy. <laughs> so even when we were little, I remember these things. Ever since we were young, we did covet. We did steal. We did argue and fight. Did we really promote unity? Or did we promote division? But now that we're older, is it really any different What is really being promulgated by the culture at large today? Isn't it this? Isn't it this? My ideas are better than yours. But not just better. They're so much better that there is no more room for discussion. Don't listen. Don't, don't, no, no discussion. Just listen, okay? Just listen. That's how much better my ideas are. In fact, I'm going to call your ideas toxic. This is the mind of someone depraved. This is someone egotistical. And this mindset has and is and will find its way into the church. Even though it is in complete and total opposition to what the church should be. And why is this important? Because when the church is divided, it's not you that gets degraded. What gets degraded when the church is divided? You know what gets degraded when the church is divided and split? It's the testimony of the church. Our witness is compromised. Because what the church does is illuminate to the world who Jesus Christ is. The church illuminates to the world who Christ is. And this is why when we have really baby and young Christians who don't know from their left and right, who come in for church maybe a year or two, maybe more, and they think they know all the problems of the church, and they're going outside and they go, I've been to church, and it's like blah, blah, blah. It stinks. 
here's the weaknesses because I'm so smart, I'm so critically um, aware and intelligent. Let me tell you what's wrong with the church. You think you're degrading the church, but it's not the church that's degraded to the outside world. When the outside world hears it, what is degraded is the testimony of the church. Our witness is compromised when we have division. That's why division is such a primary issue, and Paul addresses it as such. Appeal hinges the beginning and the rest of the letter, which is an exhortation from all the errors. In chapters 1 from 10 and on that we'll go over, chapters 1 verse 10 to 4, chapter 4 is about division. From 5 to 6, it's about immorality. From 7, it's marriage. 8 to 11 is about Christian liberty. From 11 to the chapter 11 is about the table, the communion table. Chapters 12 to 14 is about the gifts. Chapters 15 is about the resurrection. Chapter 16 is about money. And these are errors in the church. But the exhortations and corrections start with the errors regarding division. When the unity of the church is compromised, then the credibility of its testimony and the joy of ministry together are also compromised. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47, it says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their positions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. This is what we should be familiar with, with verses 1 through 9. But here's verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. There is one theme that carries throughout this passage, and that is the singularity of the heart of the people inside the church. And we see the fruit that the Lord gives is they add it to the number day by day. So why does Paul use the word parakalo here? And here is the heart of exhortation in Christ. I'm going to read from you uh, Philemon. Philemon is a very short uh, book. It's only one chapter. But in, in Philemon, in verse 8 and 9, it says, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Paracalo, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. This was a letter to Philemon about Onesimus. Onesimus was a runaway slave that Philemon owned. Paul could have brought the hammer down. He could have said, look, 
He is no longer a slave because he is your brother. You cannot treat him the way you were going to treat him, but you must treat him like a brother. He could have brought the hammer down, but it says here, for love's sake, he prefers to appeal to you. This is not a worldly mechanism. The world does not use these mechanisms because it cannot. It doesn't have parakala because it does not have the paraclete. But if you have the paraclete, you can have the parakalo. The word appeal here is the same as what we've read in verses 1, 10. I mean, chapter 1, verse 10, parakalo. The law demands... But love and grace makes appeal. But as far as demand versus appeal, and that's contrasted, you might think, well, doesn't appeal sound weak, though? Doesn't appeal sound weak over demand? And this is verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. The appeal is made to the church in Corinth, how? By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The primary reason why we should act or behave a certain way is because this is what our Lord Jesus Christ would desire. By the name or through the name means all that Jesus is and all that he wills. By the name means all that he is and all that he wills. You know, when we finish our prayers in Jesus' name, this is not just some kind of magical incantation. By Jesus' name, and it has to happen. That's not the way we pray in Jesus' name. It's not a seal to a wish that now a genie has to fulfill. Praying in Jesus' name means praying in faith that this is what Christ would want and this prayer is consistent with his character, which means all that he is and all that he wills, and I stand alongside that. As the family of Christ... All that we do together, all that we do in life, is done in this perspective of Christ. Before, our old selves, however, would not be captive to Christ. What would we be captive to? We would be enslaved to sin. In Romans chapter 6, 6, it says this, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we, no longer be, we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Before our old selves, we were captive to sin, but now we are captive to Christ. In that same chapter, 17, 18, it says, But thanks be to God, that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. What we do reflects the master we serve. And this is our testimony to the world. 
And that's why when people think, well, I'm just being real here, it's just who I am, and we're complaining to the world about the church over an outright sin, what you are doing is not just being immature Christians. That's not the excuse that you can give. What you are doing is you are harming the witness of Christ. And this is why it's so important that we see what we do here is carried out. If we were ever perhaps in danger of losing that perspective, in Acts chapter 20, Paul exhorts the elders in Ephesus, and he exhorts them this way with Miletus and the rest of the elders. He says this in verse 28, Pay careful attention to yourselves. Remember, this is to the elders. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which we all know, but he adds this, which he obtained with his own blood. How are elders to see the flock of the church? They're not just anybody. They're not just people who might annoy you that you might like or dislike. These are people that God has obtained with his own blood. And subsequently, then how are you to see everyone else around you? How do you look at yourselves now? The flock of the church are people that God has obtained with his own blood. And so... What is this appeal? What is the actual appeal? Man, we're only on the first word, but what is this actual appeal? It's one, but it's also three things. That all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. And we are spending some time on this particular verse because this is what theologians have called the prothesis or the major statement of the rhetorical thesis of the whole epistle. If you don't get verse 10, you can't get the epistle right. And that's why we, all the theologians have spent so much time in verse 10, and hopefully I'm doing justice to that by spending time here as well. Mind you also that Paul is talking about the local church in Corinth. The local assembly is to focus on these things. Some may be tempted to think broader between churches and denominations, but that's not the full context here. The context is to the local church in Corinth. There are other letters like Timothy and and Ephesians that do focus on the broader church, but this is the local setting. And in this local setting, we are told and admonished and exhorted in this local setting, in this church here, that we are all to agree There be no divisions and unity in the same mind and same judgment. All agree is from the Greek word lego, which means to say the same thing or have the same opinion. Okay? All agree is from the Greek word lego, which means to say the same thing or have the same opinion. And some of you, when hearing this, will think to yourselves, oh, I thought that unity isn't uniformity. You know, as time goes on, I hate more and more the empty platitudes that we were fed. What do you mean unity isn't uniformity? Doesn't unity have some 
form of uniformity? Why are these two things pitted against each other? Oh, we all go to the same school, so we don't have to wear the same uniforms. Yeah, sure. But going to the same school could mean wearing the same uniforms, right? And here is the exact word. The standard that God is giving to the church is to have the same opinion and say the same thing. And you might respond after seeing this, that's impossible. That is impossible. And indeed, the standard of God is impossible without the help of the paraclete. And just because we can't attain that standard by ourselves, have we ever seen in the Bible God lower the standards? In fact, even when Jesus Christ came to this earth, what was his command? Didn't he say, you therefore, after he teaches them all these things, you therefore must be perfect. Like who? Like your heavenly father is perfect. God doesn't lower the standards. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, he raises us up to the standard. If he lowered his standard, he would not be righteous. But through Christ and by the power of his spirit, we are lifted up to it. So what is this same thing that we ought to say? What is it that we should all be in agreement in vocalizing? As it is God's standard to say the same thing, the thing that we are to say or agree in vocalizing is what the Word of God teaches. There is a word for that. It's called doctrine. Doctrine. Our English word doctrine is derived from the Latin word doctrina, which means that which is taught. Doctrine means that which is taught. It is instruction. Some of us have been taught that we, we should hold or adopt or understand differing views. Huge, I want to understand this view and that view and this view. And we think that's what makes us intelligent, at least critically intelligent. The absurdity of that statement is that it cannot be made with truth claims. You can't go around teaching, well, this could be true or this could be true and this could be true, but who knows? You are literally teaching nothing. You can't go around saying 2 plus 2 can equal, and for the nerds, 2 plus 2 in base 10, but 2 plus 2 can equal 1 or 2, maybe 3, maybe 4. When you have two differing truth claims, either one or both are false. When you have two differing truth claims, either one or both are false. To be united or to say the same thing must mean we all agree on something. And if we claim to be united, if we're like, oh, we're all united, but it's not in biblical doctrine, then our unity is based on something else. And that something else is not biblical, that something else is not eternal, and that something else is temporal, and that something else will fade. I don't care what you say. You could be like, I come here because I like Puge. That is temporal. I may die tomorrow. I tell my wife this all the time. God may take me away. And then she goes, he'll take me away first. And then we fight over who's going to die first. I don't know. It's, it's a weird kind of a couple thing. But, but this is true. God could take you away. You don't place your entire faith on just something temporal. But what we are to be united in 
is doctrine, biblical teaching. Philippians 3, verse 13, uh, chapter 3, verse 16 to 17, it says, Only let us hold true to what we have attained or have been taught. Verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me. And if you look at me, you shouldn't be looking at the stuff or like my physical features, but you should be imitating the spirituality, if anything. Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk. That means live out according to the example or the doctrines or the teachings you have in us. Romans 16, verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers. Again, the word appeal. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Who is the teacher of the church? Who is the teacher of this church? I'll give you another hint. Who is the master teacher? It's really quiet. It's, it's Jesus Christ. <laughs> I, I believe you may have whispered it, but the mask kind of, uh, you know, buffed that out. But who is the teacher of the church? Who is the master teacher? It's Jesus Christ. And what is the textbook that he has given us to use? It is the Bible. What is the textbook we ought to use? The Bible. Who has the master teacher then commissioned according to the textbook that we have received then? It's the elders. Basic foundational doctrines are set by the elders, but they must be agreed and followed by everyone in the church. You know, let's say, all, let's say elders all agree in CGS doctrinal issues, in my opinion, must be unanimous. We don't make doctrinal uh, issues here in our session with like a three to five vote. That's not how we do things. Perhaps if you wanted a microwave, it could be three to five and three one, but not doctrinal issues for obvious reasons. And let's say the CGS elders are in unity, uniformity in, doc, in this doctrine. And then let's say someone else comes along and decides to teach something else. You know what? I know the CGS elders teach this, but I want to teach something else. So even if it's a minority of people that go to this, to this kind of teaching, they will have to now, because the elders do not teach it, they will have to go to this other guy to learn the thing that he is teaching. That literally means division. Paul is exhorting the church that there be no divisions, that we be of the same mind and judgment. This is why every teacher and leader of the church must follow and teach the same things the elders teach. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12, 13, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you. He's talking about respecting the elders and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. There are people that are over you and, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. You are not to have fighting. You are not to have divisions. And here is where, in verse 14, he goes on further. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. He goes on further, but I'm going to stay on the word idol because the word idol is from also the word disorderly or unruly. 
These are people, idle people here means these are people who do not listen to instruction. These are people who do not follow the doctrines. That's who we are to admonish as a church. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, it says, Obey your leaders. These are the local church leaders, uh, your elders. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. You know, you know why being an elder is such a heavy burden? It's not because we get to make decisions whether we have a microwave or not. It is not. We have been commissioned to keep watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. When elders go to heaven, and I want elders to listen to this, when you go to heaven, God will hold you to account every sheep that has come into this church. That's why we lose sleep. We don't lose sleep because we spent an extra $5 on something else. We lose sleep because of the souls that we have been given to protect and to teach. Let them do this. Now he's talking to the church. Let the elders do this with joy and not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. You know, to submit, there must be unity. That's what submission essentially does. It gives unity. We must speak the same thing. And it's not my opinion. It's not my opinion that we should be saying the same thing of. Like, I like the color blue. It's like, oh, yeah, that's doctrine now. That's not what we're talking about here. We must speak the same thing. And some may say to this area of doctrine, some may say, fine, I'll let you teach that doctrine, but I don't have to agree with it. That attitude and heart goes directly against this mandate. Divisions, or the word, the Greek word that's used, divisions that we see here, or the schismata, where we get the word schism, which literally means split. Schismata means split opinions. So does it mean uniformity? Is the Bible demanding uniformity? And if by uniformity you mean talking in the same way, like physically, like we all talk like me, then no, obviously not. Imagine everybody starts talking like that. That would be weird. So that's not what we're talking about. But if you mean that we understand that it's one opinion that's right, and yes, that one opinion is God's opinion, yes. And we submit to that opinion, yes. And we see that God has ordained elders in the church to lead the way, yes. And we should trust the elders, yes. We should submit to, in love, uh, to one another in Christ in love, yes. If that's what you mean by uniformity, then yes. So yes, the plurality of elders in the church moving in unanimity, especially in the doctrines of the church, points. What does all this point to? It points to the headship of Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. United is from the word katartizo, and that was used in mending fishing nets. Like, united is from the word mending, and that mending fishing nets, you would have used katartizo. And when we have a broken bone, you mend it by putting it together, binding it up, and have the bone grow back together. That's the meaning of united here. How do you get mended? You also get mended in the same, having the same mind and same judgment. 
there is a picture that we've been shown here. It's a picture of voluntary willingness that we will stay together, that it will be mended together and we will grow together so that we will be of one mind and one judgment or opinion. But that's not how the Corinthians were. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people, by the way, Chloe, we are not sure if it was a man or a woman, but you know, uh, modern days Chloe is a, a female name. Uh, I mean, we have ne- there's no other instance of the word, uh, the name Chloe in the Bible except here. But Chloe would have meant uh, young green shoot. It signified fertility or about blooming, right? It was possibly a woman, but nothing definitive. I do believe it was a woman because Chloe does sound like a woman's name. Uh, and it's Greek. That's why it's not, when we see C-H-L-O-E, we don't pronounce it Chlo. That's not the name. It's Chloe because C-H is where we get from the Greek letter Chi, that big X if you ever see Greek. And then we anglicize it by putting C-H in it. That's why it's not Chlo. It's Chloe. And that's a Greek name. And Chloe's people had reported to Paul that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Paulos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. The report that is that there is infighting in the church because like, well, I like this theologian, I like this teacher, I like that elder. Factions were being formed where people said they either followed Paul, and Paul was a significant figure. Why? Because in Acts 18, we saw that he was the planter of the church. He is the founding member of the church in Corinth. And so they go, I follow Paul. And other people would say, I follow Apollos. Who's Apollos? He was the elder sent after Paul to teach the church in Corinth. Or Cephas. Cephas is the apostle Peter. There's no indication that Peter ever went to Corinth. So it may have been other Jewish Christians that went to Corinth from Jerusalem and they wanted to pull some weight. They wanted to have some clout in the discussion, in the room. So they would go, I follow Peter, the number one apostle, you know, Cephas. Or in the last one is, or I follow Christ. And this could have been Christ could have been, we don't have evidence yet, but Christ could have been, this Christ-following group could have been this ultra-spiritual group who wanted to claim superiority over the other groups, but it could have also meant, been uh, meant ironically, like almost like sarcastically, like, I follow Christ, you know? Because the very next verse is, is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? Because in verse 13, This is all filled with ironic and even ridiculous, up to the sarcastic of statements. Is Christ divided? Can Christ be split up into different parts and apportioned to different people like some Lego pieces indeed? And it gets even more towards the realm of ridiculousness. Was Paul crucified for you? Did Paul die on the cross for your sins? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Do we pray Paul's will be done? That's what he's saying. He didn't bring the other people like Apollos or Cephas into it because he's showing them the ridiculousness of citing and filling up these groups or factions saying, I stand with Paul or Apollos or Cephas or I'm in Christ's group when they're actually literally split with everyone else. And this is where Paul would also 
continue on and go, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none, no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Crispus was most likely the synagogue ruler that we saw in Corinth in Acts 18, and Gaius was Paul's host in Corinth when he wrote the letter to the Romans, and you see this in Romans chapter 16. These are probably those two people, but they were probably the first converts in Corinth, so Paul took part in their baptisms. But that was a a minuscule amount of baptisms compared to the entire church in the whole city of Corinth that were baptized. He's showing them how small this number was and why it's, it's not about who baptizes. Paul didn't baptize anyone else as if to bind them to his faction, as if to compete with others in baptizing, as if he was the main reason people converted. Being baptized by Paul didn't bring them into fellowship with Paul. It brought them into fellowship with Christ. And yes, subsequently, that would bring them into fellowship with Paul, but also Apollos, but also Cephas. In verse 16, it says, uh, in a parenthetical statement, he says, I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. Here, Paul makes this parenthetical statement most likely because as the letter is dictated, he may have gone beyond and goes, actually, whoops, there is also uh, Stephanus. We do not believe Paul is infallible, obviously, but the word of God, meaning the scriptures that are written down, is infallible. And so what is written here is infallible. It is without error. And so he makes this parenthetical statement, and uh, he shows us how really little, what that shows us is how really little Paul paid attention to when he himself would perform an actual baptism. This, of course, doesn't mean baptisms are not important. That's not what is being said here. But how little he paid attention to when he actually performed the baptism. And even though parenthetical, it gives us an insight to the early church uh, life, especially concerning the sacrament of baptism. Paul says here that he baptized the household of Stephanus. The study of the word household shows us that it is the word oikos. Oikos reveals that it most definitely, and now current modern day study of this ancient word oikos reveals that it most definitely meant it included infants. Not only that, not only that, does household mean that infants in the house were baptized? Not only that, in the second century, we have writings that show infant, baptized, infant baptisms were regularly being performed in the church. So infant baptism was happening and happened. And some might argue that this was an error, right? By the second century, this was an error. And so uh, the church fell into error uh, broadly. There's really no evidence any kind of objection or controversy to infant baptism in any of the early writings of the church. It was done regularly, and the church was comfortable with it. One then, if you are not for infant baptism, one could perhaps argue that the church father's writings aren't authoritative, you know, but only the Bible is. And I would agree with that. I would agree. And while I would tend to trust the early church fathers, especially if they all agreed, I would still concede that there should be evidence that we see in the Bible. 
and this is one. There's another one. We should also understand what the sacrament of baptism is. First, just as baptism is a sign of entrance into the community of the new covenant, that's where we also learn from circumcision in the Old Testament, the sign of entrance into the core community of the Old Covenant. The people of God would get circumcised, the men. Circumcision was a sign of faith, and it was performed even among the infants of the covenant members. The, it, it, it called them as they're growing up. If you were circumcised, it called the infants of this household, as you grow up, to hold on to the teachings of God's word. So if you were circumcised, you were called to hold on to the faith that your father and mother had because you were also a part of God's household. In the new covenant, all members of the church are part of this core community. And so the analogies between circumcision and baptism really validate baptizing infants. And we especially see this in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Paul's talking to the modern church, okay? This is Colossians. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. This is why we as believers in this faith and this local church, we baptize infants and we take it extremely seriously. Those children that are baptized into this church, into the faith, we take care and we make sure that we pray for them, that they are taught the right doctrines, the doctrines that we are teaching here in this church that the elders are propagating. And they, we pray that they grow up in the faith. That's what the covenant is. That's the covenant family. I won't spend too much more time on this, but I really wanted to share this. But finally, the new covenant I want to share is much more universally inclusive than the old covenant. You know, if children had all of a sudden, from the old covenant understanding of circumcision, all of a sudden in the new covenant, there's no other sign for children, it would have been very controversial to the early Jewish believers. Of course, they would have then said, we got to go back to circumcision because they needed a sign because this is what they were taught. This was ingrained to them in the word of God. But the signs of the New Testament indicates that there is no controversy when households or the oikos and even the infants were baptized. Obviously, we don't take any infant old from the street be like, oh, baby, and then just baptize them. It really is in the faith of their parents. So the parents do not have faith. I would not baptize their child. So there really, to me, there really is no controversy uh, regarding baptism of infants. And I hope that as we continue to grow and learn in this faith and what we have been taught over the two, two millennia, uh, that we continue to grow in this understanding as well. In verse 17, let's go there. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul's job wasn't to draw people to one performing these liturgical functions, he was called to preach. His job also wasn't to draw the people to the preacher either, though. 
That would nullify the power of the cross. And here's the crux of the matter. Faithful preaching, faithful preaching draws people to Christ. Faithful preaching draws people to Christ. Faithful preachers lead people to trust, not in humans or human devices, but to trust in what Christ has done for us. This is the exact opposite of eloquent speakers and charismatic leaders of today. They lead people to themselves because people want a leader. People want a leader. Look at the politics of today. People want a leader. But faithful preachers point to Christ. That is the key to maintaining unity in the church. In Romans chapter 15, verse 5 and 6, it says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in, accordance, in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. People, this one voice, one opinion, same mind, same judgment is all over the Bible. In Philippians chapter 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. You know why there's division? It's because, just like it says here, also in James 4, it's because we have selfish desires and we need those selfish desires to trump every other desire. So I want to part ways because I don't want, I want my desire to get promoted, to get lifted up. My pleasures to take priority. And that's why he reminds us, do nothing from this kind of selfish ambition. It's like, ah, I'm not selfish. It's just really difficult for me. Why do you think it's difficult for you when it's the word of God? And this is why, elders, you also need to know this. If this is the word of God, if this is a doctrine that's given to us by the word of God, then how should you preach it? How should you teach it? Reluctantly? Like, I'm sorry, guys. It says it's in the Bible. What kind of teacher would that be? How are we viewing the word of God? Shouldn't it be taught in joy? So this is why he's saying, make my joy complete by teaching the same thing, by having the same mind. Not with selfish ambition. Not by saying, you know, I'm not being selfish. But usually when people go, I'm not being selfish, but it's probably because it's selfish, right? It's, like, it's the same thing when I, I joke around because this is such a sensitive word today. And I think people think it's not proper to joke around. But the best time to joke around is when it's not proper. Otherwise, it's not a joke. So I would say, guys, if you start any sentence by saying, this is not racist, but it's probably racist, my point. Why would you have to set it up by saying, this is not racist? Just say it if it's not racist. But this is not selfish, but, you know. Oh, by the way, I've heard that there are some other people tuning into our stream, uh, even people across the sea. And uh, I heard even people from Korea uh, maybe looking at the stream. So I want to say hello to those of you in Korea, in Korean. Hello. So, uh, that's, uh, so if I said something like that, you'd be like, oh, that's a little. But if I, if I, if I prefixed it with, look, I don't want to be racist, then you know it's by, because, it, do you guys know what I'm saying? If people are saying, I don't want to be selfish, but 
That's not why we do things. Of course, we are not to be selfish. And how are we not to be selfish? It's in humility we count others more significant than ourselves. You know, the word count, I'll stay here as we end. What are you counting? That's important. What are you counting? I'll show you what I mean. Even little things, like even in my household, when we do the dishes, um, sometimes my wife does it, sometimes I do it. When we cook, sometimes my wife does it, sometimes I do it. When we take out the garbage, just I do it. But besides that part, there are chores that we do split uh, when we clean. Sometimes my wife vacuums, sometimes I vacuum. However, what do you count? If we start counting, well, I did it last time, so this time it's your turn. You can start seeing there's a selfishness that's rising up, right? I'm not regarding the other person as more significant than myself. That's how you know the selfishness is coming up. I start counting. But what do I really count if I am to count anything? I count others more significant than myself. You don't count for yourself. You count for others in the church. That's why in this church, if you want to promote unity, if you want to continue to grow in unity, if you do not want to cause division, then count others more significant than yourselves. Again, when we go through Corinthians, there's so much admonition here. There's so much exhortation. You guys know that we could have gone much longer because it's so rich when we go verse by verse, when we see how it connects to the rest of the word. I encourage you, I appeal to you, to continue to study the word. If there's something that you didn't fully grasp, continue, you have the same text, textbook as me. Continue to go to the word and bring it to me. Share it with me. What, what do you think about this? How about this verse? What about this part of the Bible? And we can have a dialogue. This shouldn't end our understanding of unity or division, but this is a launching pad. It's a starting point for us. Speak the same thing. Say the same thing. Have the same doctrine. The doctrine must be biblical doctrine that the elders are purporting. And do it humbly, not with selfish ambition. This is the encouragement that the word gives us. And this is how we show the world the testimony of Christ. It is so that the world will see CGS and be like Christ be glorified. Christ be glorified. Let's pray.